Over the past five weeks, we have celebrated the 500th year anniversary of the Reformation by studying the major components that make up this amazing historical event. The Reformation returned the church to the integrity of the Bible. And although these slogans were not used initially by the Reformers, uh, the biblical truths of sola fide, faith alone, sola scriptura, scripture alone, sola gracia, grace alone, sola Christus, Christ alone, and sola de gloria, for God's glory alone, they emerged as the Reformers endeavor to honor God and honor God alone. That was what the Reformation was about. David Van Drunen, in his treatise on um, sola de gloria, the glory of God alone, said this. He says, people may have begun speaking of the five solas of the Reformation only long after the Reformation itself. But each of these five themes does, in fact, probe the heart of the Reformation faith and life in its own way. The Reformers may not have spoken explicitly of the five solas, but the magnification of Christ, grace, faith, Scripture and God's glory and these alone suffuse their theology and ethics, their worship and piety. Christ alone and not any human contribution saves us. Faith alone and no other human action is the instrument by which we're saved. Scripture and no merely human word is our ultimate standard of authority. God's glory alone and that of no other creature is the supreme end of all things. That, my friends, was what the Reformation was about. And as we dive into this last message on God's glory alone, sola Deo gloria, let's pray. Father, thank you for history and how we can learn about you, not just in our own lives today, but what has happened before us and how we can draw near to you through the works and the, the struggles and the trials of the saints who came before us. Lord, as we study this topic this morning, your glory alone, help us to expand our view of you and expand our hearts, feelings towards you, that our affections are drawn towards God's glory alone. Lord, may everyone here walk away singing your praises. And Father, I pray that you would help me to articulate, to proclaim, and to honor you through the words I speak. Help me to do that by your Spirit, in Christ's name, and for his sake. Amen. Now, sola Deo Gloria is a bit different than the other four. In the 15th century, the Roman Catholic Church would have wholly supported the truth of God's glory alone. They would have never said, oh, no, no, we don't believe in, in God's glory. And yet, even though they didn't denounce this truth, they did denounce the truth of faith alone and Scripture alone. And by doing so, they undermined sola de gloria, God's glory alone. And this this truth, God's glory alone, this fifth sola, this fifth sola deo gloria is the glue that holds the other ones in place. The other ones have no purpose apart from where does it all go? To God's glory. Now the word glory or some form of it appears in the scriptures over 530 times. 
on my own, I am honestly at a loss to teach you about God's glory because this morning I can barely scratch the surface on this topic. I was trying to think, how, how does this make me feel in trying to proclaim and communicate God's glory? And, and the best analogy I could come up with is I, I feel like an ant trying to describe the Grand Canyon. It's just so much bigger than I can communicate to you. But thankfully, the Bible gives us a clear view of God and His glory. And when we leave here today, I hope we are all appropriately in awe of the Lord. Ultimately, this, this topic is what the Reformation was all about, God's glory alone. And it's what we are all about. It's what Grace Church exists for, for the glory of God, for God's glory alone. The fact that salvation is by faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone, without any merit or contribution on our part, ensures that all of God's glory is His alone and no one else's. And so that's why we're here today. That's what we exist for. Again, David Van Drunen said, the highest purpose of God's plan of salvation in Christ made known in Scripture is not our own beatitude, wonderful as that is. The highest purpose is God's own glory. God glorifies Himself through the abundant blessings He bestows upon us. Solo de Gloria reminds us that the truths recaptured by the Reformers are not about us, but about God alone. A.W. Tozer said this, he said, the church has surrendered, the church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has done, not deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge, and her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. This low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. With our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of divine presence. And it is true. The Reformers saw the glory of God diminished in their day. A.W. Tozer saw the same in his day. The loss of seeing, extolling, and praising God in all His glory is also a reality in our day. Many things compete for our attention and more so for our affections. It is the fallen world we live in that does not draw our attention or our affections to God, but it draws our affections and our attentions away from God. Many in the church have a low view of God and have known very little about his divine nature, and so they don't, they don't understand all about God's glory alone. After hearing a teaching by James Boyce on the attributes of God, one man remarked, I've been a Christian for nearly 40 years, attending church faithfully all that time, and yet in all those years I've never heard anyone teach about the attributes of God. Hearing this, his friend remarked, well, who do you think you were worshiping all that time? It's true. What we don't know about God and His attributes and His loftiness and His majesty and who He is, when we don't know that, who are we worshiping? When you stand here on a Sunday morning and you raise your hands and you sing, who are you worshiping? Do you know who you are worshiping? 
Romans 11.36 is our passage this morning, and if you would, turn there so that we know who we are worshiping. Paul gives us this glorious doxology, and he tells us who we are are worshiping, and he puts God in his proper place. Now, you have to understand how Paul gets here. In Romans 1, Paul speaks of humanity's fall, and and it's its attempt to try to ascend to the heights of heaven on its own merit, believing that mankind is the highest good. And then in Romans 3, Paul goes on where he states, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then he brings us to Romans 9 through 11, where he talks about God's sovereignty and election and salvation and and what God has done in our lives. And then he gets to this point in 11, verse 33. Oh, You could do a whole message on O. (laughs) Paul's Paul's doxology, his praise, his explanation. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now here's my proposition because this is all about God's glory. The reformers boldly, they humbly, they courageously return to a biblical view, this biblical view right here of God as sovereign and glorious and a biblical view of man as hopelessly sinful. In the eyes of the reformers, God once again became big and man returned to his rightful place. So here's my proposition this morning. God's glory is independent of humanity, but it is in humanity where we see most clearly His glory displayed by those who believe and follow Him. God's glory is independent of humanity, but it is in humanity where we see most clearly His glory displayed by those who believe and follow Him. Now, as Christians... We certainly should pursue all activities for the glory of God. But it is wrong and imbalanced to focus this final truth, sola deo gloria theme, exclusively upon our actions as believer. Because whether we ever glorify God or not, He is glorified. And if we focus in on we are the ones who glorify God, then it becomes about us and not about God. Our focus is first and foremost about God. Again, David Van Drunen says this. He says, Focusing sola deo gloria solely on human conduct is imbalanced in that it fails to reflect Scripture's careful presentation of the topic. On many occasions, Scripture calls the saints to give glory to God in their worship. And in a couple of places, it exhorts Christians to do all things for God's glory. But more often, Scripture appeals to God's glory as a way of describing God. 
especially as he manifests himself through biblical history, climactically in the Lord Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit, and the new creation where Christ now sits enthroned. Sola de Gloria has much to do with our Christian moral life, but biblical integrity demands that we first reckon with how the glory of God is truly about God himself. I so desire, Devin so desires as your pastor, and as we know you do, to glorify God. That is, that is what we live for. But we also have to recognize that glorifying God is not about us. It can never be about us. So two points this morning. Two, main, two points are this, God's internal glory and God's external glory. God's internal glory and God's external glory. Paul describes in 33 through 35 God's internal glory. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. God's glory describes the divine attributes that reflect and reveal all of God's perfections. All of God's divine attributes reflect His glory, but particularly His attributes that are internal and incommunicable. Incommunicable are the the attributes of God that God has that we would never have. We do. There are communicable attributes of God that, that God has that we have. God is love. We can love. That's a communicable attribute. But, but the ones where God has, God is eternal. He's existed for all eternity. We are not. God is immutable. It means he never changes. We change all the time. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time, all the time. We're here. <laughs> he is omniscient. He's all-knowing knowing everything, knowing all the thoughts, the intentions of the heart of everyone everywhere and not getting confused. He's self-sustaining. He's perfect. All of these attributes sing loudly about who God is and all these attributes speak of the excellencies of His nature. He is infinitely worthy to be praised, admired, and loved. God is glorious internally. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, is internally glorious according to their knowledge and and love and the delight that they take in themselves. He is, God is self-glorifying. There the depths of riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Only God knows who he is. Only God knows the depths of who he is. We look into the depths of God and then we just see a bottomless pit. We just can't go that far. He is self-glorifying. He doesn't need anyone to bring him glory because he glorifies himself. It's good and proper for God to delight in himself. Now, if you're struggling with the idea of God glorifying himself as though that is somehow self-exalting and proud, I would suggest you have a very low view of God. God is perfect. God is holy. God is pure. 
God can glorify himself without being proud. God can glorify himself in ways that we cannot do. We can never glorify ourselves. Where, where it is possible with God, it's not possible with us. Years ago, in North Carolina, someone in our church passed away, and at the funeral, many gracious things were appropriately said about this, this person. And during the service, I thought, I think people would say those things about me when I died, kind of taking silent delight in my own assessment of myself. And as I walked out of the funeral with a friend of mine, I remarked to him, I said, I hope those kind things are said about me at my funeral. And he quickly remarked, don't worry, they won't be, which is, <laughs> which is true. Only God can glorify himself. And God, God rightly should glorify himself. And he does. And he delights in that. And we should delight in that. God can and does rightly glorify himself, and he doesn't need any of us to do it. If we did not exist, God would still receive glory. And it would, be, it would not be any less glory. God's glory would be as Gloriful as possible, as glorified as it possibly can, it would never end. He is filled with glory. He doesn't need here, as we see, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor. He doesn't need anybody. He doesn't need counselors like we do. He doesn't need anybody to instruct him. He's all wise. He doesn't need anybody to help him. He's self-sustaining. He just doesn't need anybody. And he doesn't owe anybody anything. He's in debt. To, we are in debt. We are debtors. We are debtors to God. We are debtors to sin. We are debtors before the Lord. And that's why Christ had to come and pay our ransom on the cross. But is God in debt to no one? No. Verse 35, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? God, God is self-sustaining and he is self-glorifying. He is rich in mercy. He is all wise. He is particularly, particularly in the revelation of our salvation. And I think this is where Paul comes in verse 33, where he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. He's referring back to election. He's referring back to salvation. He's referring back to God choosing us to know him. Paul praises God's glorious attributes, rich in mercy, all-wise, all-knowing, as revealed in our salvation, as revealed in our sanctification, and eventually in what we know as glorification. God's glory is revealed in his unsearchable judgments and inscrutable ways. What does Paul mean by that? When, when Paul speaks about the glory and perfection of God's judgment and inscrutable ways. He's speaking, first of all, of judgments literally means decrees, his decrees, his sovereign decrees that, that inform and, and decree over our lives, the decrees that, that manage our lives, the, the sovereign one who knows everything and permits all things and cares for us. That's what he's talking about there. And inscrutable, when he's talking about inscrutable ways, he's talking about God from Psalm 77, where we see that God walks upon the seas, his footsteps are unknown. If you remember the, the, um, the wonderful hymn by, 
by William Cooper. God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Who sees footsteps in the sea? There are no footprints. So God moves in mysterious ways. God is working. His ways are inscrutable. And it's here where God in the most, for us at times, unusual and can be challenging ways, God glorifies himself in the situations of our lives. It's what William Cooper was writing about. How often, how often we do not see God. We don't see his footsteps in the midst of our trials and our sufferings. We can't search his ways. We don't understand his judgments. Why, why, why this decree? Imagine the people in Houston today who do not have a home when they had a home two weeks ago. Do they see God's footsteps? Do they understand his unsearchable ways? Cooper goes on to say, deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and he works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. This is what Paul is, is extolling in this doxology. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And his purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. And then these words, these ending verse, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. That, my friends, is the unsearchable judgments and inscrutable ways of God that he is watching over everything in your life, every detail, every experience, every suffering, every trial, every moment in his love, in his care, all so that he would glorify himself. I know that could feel a bit challenging. You think, I'm in Houston, I've lost my house, and God is doing this to glorify himself. What about me? But that's where, wisely, William Cooper said, blind unbelief, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. And eventually, he will make it plain. That is God's internal glory. These are internal attributes. We we don't know the heart and mind of God. Only God does. But he glorifies himself in all his acts, in all his works. He glorifies himself, and he glorifies himself in such a way that it is always to our good. Now, there's also God's external glory. Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. God's divine glory also expresses itself externally in creation, in you and me, in the world around us. Again, Van Drunen says this, God possesses internal glory from all eternity, and he can never have more of it than he's always had. 
But Scripture also speaks of God making all things for himself for his glory. This is the external glory of God, which is expressed for one thing in the heavens and the earth. All those glorious creatures here below, which are said to show forth his glory as declared in Psalm 19. Glory, God's glory consists in having such creatures, men and angels, to be his followers. We can glorify God not by putting any excellency into him, but by taking notice of his excellency and esteeming him accordingly and making manifest our high esteem of him. And he, and he, he glorifies himself externally in, th- in creation. For from him and through him and to him are all things. God created the heaven and earth as a place to show his glory, not because he needed to, but simply because he desired to display his love and character. It's in creation, particularly humans, you and I, that God's glory is revealed. God created us to reflect his glory. We were made in his image. An astounding blessing. An astounding blessing and a position of great honor. There is no other created thing that reflects the glory of God, the way humans do, because we were created in His image. We are image bearers of the one who deserves all glory. Now, the problem is the very creatures He created to display and share His glory rebelled. They chose to glorify themselves rather than God, and sadly, God's glory became veiled in the very people he created to display his glory. And even more amazingly is that in the midst of this tragic experience, God still has chosen to include us in his glory because it glorifies him passage after passage, and you can write this down. I'm not going to turn there, but 2 Thessalonians 2.14 Hebrews 2.10, 1 Peter 5.4, 1 Peter 5.4, he, he says to pastors, he says that if you are faithful in your work, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In Hebrews uh, 2.10, he talks about bringing many sons to glory. And we talk about our salvation and our sanctification and our glorification, that we are going to share in the glory of Christ in the new heavens, in the new earth. Why would God share his glory with anybody? He doesn't need to, and yet he chooses to. And so the ultimate display of God's eternal glory is in who? It's in Christ. He displays his glory in creation, but his ultimate display of God's external glory is in Christ. An important way in which God does, the most important way in which God glorifies himself is in our salvation. Think of this, from eternity past, God put salvation as his plan in place. Ephesians 1, 4, before the foundation of the world, you were chosen. The plan of glory for God to glorify himself in humanity was always in place. Even in the tragic and evil events of man's rebellion, God's glory stands working redemption in us for desperate sinners. God has glorified himself in Christ for our sake, through Christ's suffering, through Christ's agony, through Christ's death. 
for Christ to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God is glorified in that moment for our sake. The plan of God to send his own son to become one of us is the most glorifying act in all of history. He accomplished God's promise to redeem mankind through his life, his suffering, his time on the cross, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, one day his return, and then we will all loudly sing praises to God. For from him and through him and to him are all things. And finally, he displays his glory in his church. He displays his glory in creation. He displays his glory in Christ. And he displays his glory in his church. Those who have been lovingly redeemed by God are called to once again reflect and display and declare the glory of God. And we do it, I'm just going to give you two ways. One, through faith. We glorify God by our faith in his promises, in his in his riches and wisdom and knowledge, his unsearchable and inscrutable ways. We trust God's promises. We put faith in God's promises. Abraham was, was the one, he glorified God. He was honored by God because God credited to him as righteousness the faith Abraham had put in him. We glorify God by our faith in who God is. Secondly, we glorify God through our worship. And when you read through Scripture, Scripture primarily points to worship as the primary way in which Christians do glorify God. Van Drunen said that we can glorify God in many ways, but Scripture indicates that nothing we do delights God more than calling upon His name with sincere hearts and declaring that all glory belongs to Him. Now, what I mean by worship... Not yet. (laughs) What I mean by worship... Is, is a distinct activity. One where we pull aside to set our hearts and our thoughts upon the Lord. And that is primarily here on Sunday mornings. It is in this activity that God takes special delight. It's the activity that will fill our eternity. Read Revelation 5, 11, and 12, where the elders bow down before the throne of God and just say, glory, glory, glory. Now, we certainly glorify God in many other ways through our serving and praying and loving one another and bearing each other's burdens and sacrificing for one another. This is what the church exists for, to, to, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever in the midst of community, in the midst of sharing in, in God's Word together, in worshiping together, all to the glory of God. God God's glory is internal. He needs no one. And yet in his mercy and kindness, his glory is also external through us, through his creation. Let me finish with this summary by David Van Drunen, which sums up from the beginning of our history of creation to this time. I think Van Drunen says it so well. To follow along, he says, Truly, Glory to God alone is the majestic heart of the Christian faith and life. God revealed his glory in the pillar of cloud and fire in the wilderness when the Israelites came out of Egypt. 
This cloud settled on Sinai and on their portable tabernacle. It led them to the promised land and finally settled on the temple in Jerusalem. Revealed as the presence of God with his people, the cloud was simultaneously a great blessing and source of terror, for the holy glory of God could not abide with the persistently sinful people. The story of God's glory seemed as though it might come to a tragic end when the cloud departed from the temple and Babylon hauled the remnant of Judah off into exile. But God, in his gracious wisdom, was not finished with his people. He restored them to the promised land, and they rebuilt their temple. Yet his magnificent promises about the glory to come was never and could never have been fulfilled in an earthly temple in the small land of Palestine. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, the promised Messiah, who came in the glory of the Spirit and brings all of God's promises to consummation. Although his glory was veiled during the humiliation of his earthly ministry and horrible death at Calvary, God raised him in glory and seated him, a human being in our own flesh and blood, at his right hand in the majesty of the new creation. From there, he ministers on our behalf from the heavenly temple and pours out his spirit to apply to us all the benefits of his redeeming work. Now there remains but one great event, the second coming of our Lord who will appear not in the humility of his first coming, but in a cloud of glory to judge the living and the dead and to welcome his children into the glory of his Father. And Paul finishes in verse 36, to him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. What a privilege we have to live every day for the glory of God. Those who were wicked and vile and sinful and arrogant and separated from God, who hated God, who mocked God, who ridiculed God, who tried to ascend to be like God. God sends His Son to take our sin, to pay the debt for our sin, to die on a cross for our sins, to be put into the grave for our sins, so that God would ultimately be glorified and we could enter into that glory someday. Brothers and sisters, what a privilege we have. What a privilege we have. Let me close with our benediction. First Peter 1, 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. May that be true of everyone here for the glory of God. Amen.